authors, our leaders, our gentle listeners. And welcome to Michael and Ethan in a room with scotch. It's not about the scotch, we promise. I am your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my esteemed guest, Ethan. J.M. Bartlett! I feel like you could have done most of what you just did with audio effects in post, and it would have been good rather than also not good. Yeah, I suppose. Oh, sorry, did I, like, kill the momentum of the introduction? Yeah, I And really, also begin like... this one angry just like it began the last one? Yeah, why are you so angry? I'm just like an you're angry... really just kind of crushing my spirit. I'm an angry little man. I don't even... I'm also crushing your head by sitting on it. It, it really hurts. I know you didn't want to mention that. It smells super bad. Like, do you even wipe? <laughs> <laughs> and the podcast is over. <laughs> We've reached the end. We've reached whatever the opposite of an apotheosis is. Yeah. And we're done. Yep. So, thank you for sticking with us. <laughs> Our entire we appreciate run, all of you. A year and a half of this podcast. Yeah, and there's no more. Yeah, that's 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 it. That's all we can ever do forever. No more. Never. Never more. No nay. Never. No nay. Never. No more. Never more. Will I play the Wild Rover? Quoth the Raven. No. Never. No more. Never more. You're just messing up my <laughs> Irish song that I didn't sing. <laughs> By inserting Poe just randomly. <laughs> like, and not even really full Poe, just like the same two lines <laughs> of Poe yeah, over you, and over again. You never go full Poe. No, I know. Don't go full Poe. It's bad. It's super bad. It's, it's really like going bad. plaid. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we're continuing to discuss, gentle listener... Ellen Foster by Kate Gibbons, while we are continuing to drink, gentle listener, the Dalmore 12-year uh, scotch. Um, from Highland Single Malt Highland Scotch Single Malt whiskey. Scotch. I will yeah. say, I think this is my second favorite Highland Scotch. Oh, all right. What's your first? My first is probably the Ardmore. Oh, okay. Yep. Yep. We yep. had that on the show. Yes, we did. And the thing about the Ardmore is it has that wonderful Highland balance, which like... Yep. A Highland Scotch is all about balance. So yep. when you want like a crowd pleasing, easy drinking, very like good single malt, go mm-hmm. for a Highland. Yeah. And you know, I don't mean any of those as like a backhanded compliment. Like those no, are because all the things that's that a Highland what it does desires to do. Yes, and an, the uh, the Ardmore has all of that, uh. but it still has. A good dose of that, like, peat smoke. Yeah. It's like, if you took Lafroy's 10-year scotch and then balanced it with a bunch of stuff that wasn't just a bonfire in your mouth, but made sure. all of those elements work wonderfully together. Right. That's my review of the Ardmore that we are not drinking. We are not. And we'll but, save the rest of your review for the rating section later. <laughs> but, wait, we did... I'm so confused by our ratings. I know. Now that we've been drinking the Dalmore, for Ardmore Dalmore, interesting, for like two straight months. Yep. So, gentle listener, if our podcast from the very beginning and also forever from this point forward, so all of the points forever, if it is very incoherent, it's because we're just, we're just 
a month into a giant bender. That's right. There's there's never a moment in either of our lives when our blood alcohol level is less than like point... seventeen. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Our blood alcohol level hit seventeen. Yep. The first episode we drank the Ardmore, like the Dalmore. I meant the Dalmore and not oh, the see, Ardmore. I was even thinking of Jura's superstition. Like episode one. <laughs> Literally episode one. <laughs> so you're wrong. Um no, since we started drinking the Dalmore like a month or whatever the heck it's been ago, our blood Psych. alcohol level has not gone below like 24. Yep. Wait, that number keeps going up. I don't know what you're talking about. It's just started at 27 and it stayed there. Yeah, sure. Okay. 27. That's... Wait, why'd you say 27? I said 31. Anyway. Um, I said 112. Before we go way off the rails. <laughs> Which clearly Too we're late. dead by now. Too late. We are less than five minutes into this episode and we're just gone. We're dead. We're dead. But it's unfortunate because we had so little... We had one job in this episode. What was that one job? We had so little left to accomplish. Because in the last episode we discussed the first 14 chapters yep. of... The book Ellen Foster by the author Kay Gibbons. Yep. Hey, you notice how I didn't have to, like, circle back and create an Ouroboros of increasingly confusing instructions there? You're welcome. You're welcome, gentle listener. I know Michael won't appreciate this. Gosh, I'm so angry. Even so angry. Why am I so angry? Anyway. Should we get your wife in here to tell us the rules? Yeah, Karen, come in here and tell us the rules. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four. Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. listener. Okay, thanks, Karen. Get out now, All right, please. let's click our glasses so you can tell us more about Chapter 15. Uh... So we can do our one job on this podcast. <laughs> Bottoms up. I guess. It's not a salute! It's now official salute of Michael and Ethan Aroma Scotch. Like I said, we discussed 14 out of 15 chapters. Yes, we did. 
of this pod of this book of this of this podcast. Wow. There are only fifteen chapters. Just this is you know a what? bad idea. <laughs> what was a bad idea? Everything. <laughs> Go on. Uh, of 15. Yes. And we are bringing this extremely rickety flight <laughs> where all the engines have failed and we're just coasting on the oh, grace of the breezes. I feel like. Down into the. into a landing. I feel like Kay Gibbons is gonna just appear at our door and kill us both. I feel like she is more powerful than Neil Gaiman. <laughs> <laughs> like, 1000%. Love and adore Neil Gaiman. Think he is actually the Lord of Dreams incarnate. Kay Gibbons maybe could beat him in a fight. That kind is of, the impression I get. Kind of like Especially Ellen if Foster Ellen Foster was with her. Oh yeah. Like Neil Gaiman plus Dream does not equal Kay Gibbons plus Ellen Foster. They could just beat them. So this is the podcast that has turned into Super Fight the Game. Yeah, <laughs> but literary super, literary, literary su- super fight the game. Yes. Oh, man, man, I want to do that now. I do too. Sounds awesome. Oh man. Also, do you ever play the game? Here's a fun game. Do you ever play Literary Matchmaker? Okay. Where you like try to figure out your one true couple but from like works across literature okay like we did with ellen foster and huck finn yeah we played that the last episode why did you let me ask that entire question (laughs) without stopping me to say we did that last episode i just wanted to see how angry i could make you it's very angry is the answer very angry indeed (gasps) so ellen foster and huck finn Here's what I was just thinking, though. Yep. Is Juliet from Romeo and Juliet. Okay. And Tom Sawyer. Why? Because, you know how, okay, you know how there are those couples where, like, the guy is a really interesting specimen, and the woman is a really interesting specimen, Uh and you're pretty sure if you got them together, it would be, like, two of those chemical elements that if you put them together, there's an automatic, like, fireball? Uh-huh. That's what I think it would be like. All right, all right. Because Juliet is very intelligent within her own milieu, and so is Tom Sawyer. I'm, I'm, I'm okay, talking okay, about, okay, like, okay. a grown-up Tom Sawyer, so this is creepy. So, no, so wait, it's not no, creepy. She's 14! Yeah. So yeah. it's not creepy already. It's already not creepy. Yeah, why did you can make I, me think it was creepy? Can, can I'm I put so in, mad at you. Can I put a pin in this whole conversation <laughs> and say, let's let's do this for the secret section of our website for special donors. Let's play Literary Matchmaker. Yes! Yes! And do that for yes. like an hour. So All right. There's okay. a tease of that. There's and we'll a do tease more of it later. For the secret section of the website that is definitely up by this point for donors. Sure. I, I feel like I put that in the last one of the la- the last round of episodes we recorded to try to make myself do it, and it <laughs> hasn't worked up to this point. But maybe by this point, it will have worked up to this point. Sure. Wibbly wobbly, timey wimey, garbage, yep. garbage. Yeah. Um, all okay. of those Yep. So what we talked about last time. Yep. Were the first fourteen chapters. The first fourteen chapters. Oh, 15. But especially chapter fourteen of yes. Ellen Foster. In which if you ended 
Ellen Foster at chapter 14. I said this last time. It would be like ending um, A Clockwork Orange a chapter before it was actually supposed to end. Which, wait, is what happened to A Clockwork Orange and is responsible for a lot of the reputation that that book has. Mm -hmm. Um, Not sure about the movie because I haven't seen the movie so everything about that would be hearsay but I have read A Clockwork Orange and I believe it's 33 chapters long okay um, the, um, the first American printing for whatever reason and there are several possible reasons but the American publisher decided to cut the last chapter and I stopped reading Clockwork Orange after the last chapter, or just before the last chapter just to see, and it's a very different novel with those two chapters. Or with the one version with and the other without. Right. Um, And this chapter would be almost even more so. And once again, and I said this last episode, a good author would have ended it at chapter 14. Chapter 15 is an indication that I think Kay Gibbons, even though I don't know any of the rest of her work or anything about mm-hmm. her until I read this book, is a great author. Yep. So, in Chapter 14, and this is, again, review from last time, Ellen, our main character, our hero, our king, uh, she creates this very manipulative situation that all sort of comes to pieces on her. But it's the indication of, first of all, of very advanced intelligence for her age and also a very advanced sort of understanding of human condition and how humans are and how they can sort of manipulate people, right? Mm -hmm. And now going into chapter 15, I was already pretty ready to conceive Ellen Foster as not only an unreliable narrator, which I think she is, Mm -hmm. but as a duplicitous manipulative sort of evil not maybe evil but like but bordering on Nabokovian yeah and psychopathic sociopathic type of character Um, and I do still think you could make that argument from the full text of this novel sure however chapter 15 makes it a problem to do that and part of chapter 15 made me question the fact that like You know, there's that old phrase, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yep. It made me wonder, and I think it intended to, to a certain degree, whether I just look at every narrator who I think is unreliable in that way, in that, Mm -hmm. to, like, epitomize it that Nabokovian way. Right? And so then we get to chapter 15, and the first half of chapter 15 makes us understand all of the glimmers of hope and grace and goodness that have been present throughout the rest of the novel. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, the first half of chapter 15 is Ellen sort of meeting her foster mom. It's just a conversation between Ellen and her foster mother. Mm -hmm. But it's everything that Helen, Helen, Ellen (laughs) tries to do including convince me that her name was Helen, (laughs) rolls off her foster mother in this just graceful, like, way that I can only... The only literary equivalent I can conceive of comparing it to is 
descriptions in literature and history of St. Francis. Hmm. Um, and this, this way that the, the mother has, or of comparing it to our, uh, undergraduate head of our English department, <laughs> Lars Johnson, who had this thing, and I hope I'm not, like, revealing too much here, had this thing that we called the Larsadox, <laughs> in which he would take an asinine statement from an undergraduate, usually one who was taking his class just for the gen ed credit. And knowing that part of his grade was participation. Yes. And so you have to say something in order to get that participation. And so Exactly. Yeah. But Lars would take this thing that is one of the, like, most saintly operations of grace I think I have ever witnessed personally, and use all of the same words from that sentence yep. and turn them into something brilliant. Yep. Um, and that's almost what Ellen's foster mother does here. Like, Ellen makes all of these, really, if you know what she's doing and you know that she's, you know, 14 years old or whatever, these very fairly feeble attempts to manipulate her, but they had worked or at least caused some consternation with all of the other adults in her life. Yep. Um, but with her foster mother who has seen and also specializes in, you know, really just broken children, um, just rolls right off her. And I, I can't, I can't find it now that I'm trying to very quickly, but, like, the foster mother sort of interviews her and tries to figure out, you know, what her specific situation is, and, like, says, you know, to this 14-year-old girl, like, do you, like, drink a lot, or are you, like, addicted to harder drugs? And it's like, that's the crap that this foster mother has dealt with. Yep. Um, so when Ellen comes along with her just, like, feeble manipulations, the foster mother is like, oh, I get it. <laughs> um, and just manages to turn most of what Ellen says into a very honest statements. Like, just, mm -hmm. th she turns it into Ellen telling her about herself and about the trauma that she's experienced, which is a much... Doing Way better than the counselor at school. Better way to treat her than the counselor. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, uh, where is that? So, at the end of that, that, the chapter where Ellen sees the counselor, it's the end of chapter 12, page 89. Um, Ellen, Ellen says right at the end, second to last paragraph in that chapter... He will not be seeing me again. I might be confused sometimes in my head, but it is not something you need to talk about. Before you can talk, you have to line it all up in order, and I had rather just let it swirl around until I am too tired to think. Which is what this narrative does. <laughs> Which, yeah, absolutely, that narrative follows that exact train of... of swirl. And... Swirl and, and idea in Ellen, but the this... Uh, foster mother i don't even know if we get her name ever. i don't know if we do because I'm not positive well because part of the thing is ellen doesn't even know her name she yeah. just calls her new mama and knows yeah, that's that right. she's the foster that's family right and and she thinks her na last name is foster right. but we as the reader know that's not even true right but um, we, we don't know what her actual name is yeah okay that's what that's what i thought anyway um 
So yeah, new mama just like just knows exactly what she's going through and doesn't try to sort of change her. She just meets her where she is and works with that. Mm-hmm. Um which and it's interesting because like for what from what I understand and I'm certainly not an expert in this but where psychology was at in 1987 when this book was published was not there it would have been much more sympathetic with the counselor Mm -hmm. um trying to sort of get her to line her thought thoughts up coherently psychology now uh what 30 years after this book has been published is starting to catch up to this idea Mm -hmm. this idea that you know for a lot of of people and especially traumatized people getting them to sort of line their thoughts up neatly in this like echo of Freudian analysis is not actually what helps them, you know, and it's, it's the difference between empathy and kindness, Mm -hmm. you know, empathy. There's, there's been recent like studies that say people who are very empathetic often end up angry and sort of unable to help others. Yeah. Yeah. Feeling powerless. Mm -hmm. And it's because empathy is literally just, feeling the same thing that the other person is feeling. And Which to, doesn't necessarily mean there's a solution. Yeah, and so you just have now a second person who feels, and often when people need this person to listen to them, it's powerless, it's, uh, you know, frustrated, and that just turns into anger on behalf of other people, and that doesn't help anybody. Right. Um, whereas kindness, you know, takes that and does its best to see what that other person needs. Mm-hmm. Um, which is often not the same as what that other person thinks that they want. Um, right. And that's a fascinating sub-theme within this book. But right. keep going. Absolutely. Um, and, like, if if there's a Christ figure in this novel, it's uh, this foster mother in yes. this first scene. And I think I want to say getting to the end of this scene, five pages from the end, was when I sent you that text. Okay. Saying that I hated this entire novel. Good. Because it does all of that so masterfully and so beautifully in 120 pages. I think think Tolstoy wrote entire novels, entire Russian length, (laughs) 7,000 page novels trying to get to this theme. And I don't think he crystallized it. As clearly no. as Kay Gibbons did in 120 freaking pages. Right? I love unreliable narrators, okay? Like, that's what my undergrad thesis was all about. And the thing is, when you study unreliable narrators, it's really easy to fall into this trap of just the unreliable narrator is really all there is and is only evil and nothing but evil. And, and yeah, if you detect and... a, an unreliable narrator, they are a psychopath trying to manipulate exactly. you. Exactly. Nabokovian. Yes. Um, Which, you know, in and... fairness, a lot of literary works that employ unreliable narrators, I think in in some degree, are meant to do that. Yes, absolutely. And to equip a you to... I... Number. number. Yeah. Yeah, to equip you to identify a psychopath when you see it. Exactly. Um, I still hold that Shakespeare's play Othello is that's what the purpose of that play is. Yes, absolutely. Um, as well as Lolita, if it's understood on the yes. terms in which it's meant to be understood. Exactly. Yes. And the the same thing, the first 14 chapters of, of Ellen Foster is exactly that as well. Yeah. It 
Alan Foster is a Nabokovian unreliable narrator for those first 14 chapters. And right. here's why. Um, what is she after? She's not after the good life. What's she after? I don't know. You tell me. Money. Yeah. She says that explicitly. She's after money. She And she says yeah. it explicitly. She doesn't want the things. Yeah. She wants the money, which and is such a weird reversal of things and kind of a childish reversal right. of things, too. Because kind of a childish one, is, but also is, a very sophisticated adultish one. Sure, it's a it's it's a paradox, and yeah. like money in our American system is a fiat currency, right? Which means that it's meaningless unless it's attached to things, right? But she wants it unattached from things, so she wants to take she wants to suck people dry yeah. and take this meaningless thing for herself. Which in that central passage at her mama's mama's house, the, yep. the rich old woman. She fantasizes at length about taking her things and selling them off. and money. She speculates at length about, like, I wonder how much money you could get for this thing or that thing. Exactly. And that's what she's all about. She's all about just taking and getting this meaningless thing. Except, is it... Piling up this meaningless thing for herself. To her, is it meaningless or is it the symbol for freedom? It is. It is a symbol. Um, But it's, it's... a symbol that she doesn't even understand what it actually means. Right. And and she she doesn't fully grasp this idea. Because like she, she has thinks... this idea of freedom, but she doesn't yeah. really know well, what she, she means by freedom. She thinks that you more money equals more freedom. Mm-hmm. And that if you have more money, you... Uh, essentially, if you have a certain amount of money, you can do whatever you want. Right. Maybe she's not clear on what amount of money that is, but mm-hmm. she is clear that the more of it you have, the closer you are to that goal. Right. I think she ex- almost explicitly says that yeah. at one point. But then um, the, the money which she winds up trying to offer to the... Uh, she says, now I had accumulated $160 to offer my new mama to be. Yeah. So she's going to buy her way into... And the... once again, like, such a Christ figure. Yeah. Like, she doesn't I... take it. <laughs> yeah. Not only doesn't take it, but when she does take it, she just saves it to give back. Yes. Like, that's and such the a... Is, the tone of it, when she gets it back, is she recognizes how meaningless it is because yeah. she has something better. Yeah. And that's that's really where her redemption comes in. Yes. Because this whole book is about the redemption of the unreliable narrator. Right. She she is this unreliable narrator who's just manipulating and trying to get what she wants right. to take and take and take. And right. finally, when she does get what she wants, she winds up getting more than what she actually wants. Right. She gets what she needs and realizes what's actually being given to her. And that completely changes her. So we said you could have ended this, this uh, book on page 115. Yep before chapter 15 happened, period. You could also end this book at page 120, which is basically the point Mm -hmm. that you've gotten to. But no, there's this extra remarkable five pages, five five or six pages, that is the application of that knowledge of grace. Yes! Um, in, In Lutheran terms, which, you know, we try not to impose on this podcast, but being who we are, we will always fall back on this is the sanctification yes. part. 100%. And it's it would be very easy, and I don't know that I could argue fully with someone who said that these last five pages are condescending on 
um, Ellen's part. Mm-hmm. That it's this, you know, white person who's gotten everything that she wants, who then is sort of like casting a a crust to this black person. Yeah. Um, and you know, I I am certainly open to being wrong about this, but I think it avoids that by stopping at the highest point the highest sort of moral point that Ellen Foster as a character is able to attain. Because, mm. you know, there's... And certainly you could read this novel in a very interesting, I think, and in, in coherent in way. You could read it as this um, anatomy of relationships between white and black people in the South in a certain mm-hmm. era. Um, and that would be very valid and fascinating and i feel super unqualified to do it on several levels but uh ellen foster uh, herself as a character arrives at this point that um she finally realizes that you know she probably up to literally the last two sentences in this book probably where her character was she might have said, oh, yeah, well, you know, Starletto's got it hard, but I've got it hard in other ways. And she breaks through that into this sudden realization. And you have to keep in mind that this realization comes from someone who has experienced so many traumas. Mm-hmm. I laid that out at the end of the last episode, and there's, like, six separate things, I think, if not more, that, like any one of which could send someone into therapy for a lifetime. Absolutely. And when she does get to the happy ending, quote-unquote, she's still in a foster home in kind of a dinky little town in clearly sort of the backwater south. Like, by most people's lights, this is not a great situation that she's arrived at. But because of what's been given to her, she has that Joycean epiphany and says, and all this time I thought I had the hardest row to hoe. Yep. Um, which, interestingly, while we're here, is a callback to when her mama's mama sent her into the cotton fields. To work with, to work what, with these... Who were essentially slaves? S- yeah. Um, like... What's the... There's a, there's a term... Um, sharecroppers yes thank you sharecroppers which you know many people have argued was essentially legal slavery and i i am perfectly comfortable describing it as that so yes essentially slaves um who if you pay attention to those passages brief as they are are some of the kindest people in the book to her Mm -hmm. and at the time she certainly describes it but there's no indication that her in that that she in that moment understands that it it reminds me of literally my favorite film of all time sullivan's travels Hmm. 1941 um it's a hollywood romantic comedy which like you know my top 10 favorite films of all time include like a five-hour swedish film and a three-hour french film and a (laughs) four-hour russian film but my f- the top one single spot on the list is this 90-minute romantic comedy from the golden age of Hollywood. Um, and there are certainly, like, 
you know, earlier in the film, there are like stereotypical portrayals of black figures that just I I do not like. But um, the climax of the film, um, it's a long story. The narrator, the narrator, the main character, has ended up at a uh, on a chain gang, working on a chain gang in the south, and he goes to. Or uh, his, you know, they, it's announced that they have movie night, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the main character has been a Hollywood director, has a giant mansion in Hollywood with a swimming pool, ends up on this chain gang, go, like, the chain gang goes to for movie night to a black church in the swamps in the south, and there's this beautiful, like, scene with, you know, just, just sort of shows this church and shows them singing a hymn and you know, just seems fairly typical of the time and the place, but it's that the pastor just then announces, all right, we're going to have a little entertainment, and as we've done before, we're going to share this entertainment with some of those less fortunate than ourselves. Mm -hmm. Has this whole speech about, please, by, like, word or deed or look, please don't make them feel like any Mm. less than the rest of us. Um, like the Epistle of James. Yes, exactly, and that's a similar, you know, thing to this this scene with the the sharecroppers in this book. Is you know they don't see race, they don't see identity politics. They see a little girl who's suffering more than a little girl should ever have to, mm-hmm. and they're kind to her, and she doesn't figure that out for another. 75 pages until the end of this book Mm -hmm. until the last two lines of this book where the only like specific concrete image in those last two lines is the phrase the hardest row to hoe calling back to those sharecroppers i thought i thought i had the hardest row to hoe and that will always amaze me yeah it's just such a perfect satisfying conclusion to this book yeah like, and you summed it up perfectly. It's the sanctification at the end after the justification that she's received with the Christ figure of the new mama. And it's just so good. Yeah. Um, I have two questions for you. Yeah. Question number one. Um, I'm noticing, I, I know it occurred in other places, but I'm looking especially at page 73, um, where she's talking... Um, she's, she's helping her mama's mama and being the caretaker. Mm. Um, and at the top of page 73, um, there's this little interlude where it's, uh, it reads, go ahead, push it in, said the magician, push it in and turn it a few times just to see if it hurts. See, you didn't feel a thing. And then she jumps back and through all the churning and spinning, I saw her face, a big clown smile looking down at me while she said to me, you best take better care of me than you did of your mama. Yeah. What is this image that has recurred several times in this book of the magician? That's, to be honest, I find this book to be like a perfect gem of a book Uh that you can sort of turn all of the aspects of in different directions and get different beautiful things that are laced throughout the book. Yeah. What you just asked is one of the things that I feel like I have nothing on it. Sure. 
and that's that's more or less what I feel too. And, um, and exactly what you said. Like if we if if I read this again and looked at it from that angle of the magician, it, it seems to be almost a circus aspect where yes. perhaps she had this experience of being in a circus and seeing all right. of this, and she this is replaying in her mind and somehow has managed to connect itself to her trauma. Yes, in some inexplicable way. Um, and like reading this a certain way, if you're reading this as the account of a victim of sexual assault. And that's um, what I'm suspecting. Yes. This definitely, like, would be a very legitimate way to read it. Because in, especially, I think throughout the magician imagery, but also especially in that passage you quoted just now, mm-hmm. like, if it reads as essentially sexual imagery and being that this is you know, a young child, like, there's nothing else to call it. If this is an experience that she has lived through and is sort of um, analogizing or metaphorizing, like, there's nothing else to call what she would be talking about than sexual assault. So, yeah, it could be that. Um, that's, I, that's my only conclusion at this point. I think it takes a second read. Yeah, I think it. More conclusion. I think it does. Thoughts on it. I think it would be certainly worth, like, you know, if I were back in one of my English grad school seminars, and -hmm. someone read this as, at least in part, the you know portrayal of of sexual assault victim and used that passage among others, including other of the magician Mm -hmm. asides, use that to justify it. I would one hundred percent respect that argument. Um, Sure, it is very much a legitimate reading and argument. Sure. Um, I think I would have to read it again to be sure. Because I know at least twice the magician comes up. Yes. Now, but... within sort of sort of a less, like, symbolic reading, um, this does follow close on the heels of a paragraph where she's talking about sort of being fe- feverish. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, which it, which being sick and feverish is clearly something also that she's experienced. Yeah, and based on all her other experiences, you can extrapolate that when she was sick and feverish, she, she either had to like lie in her bed and push through it without anyone to care for her, yeah, or get up and care for herself also without anyone to care for her. Um, sure. And you could read this also, and it doesn't have to be either or, it could be both both and, but you could read this also as she saw a magician show one time at some point, um, and, you know, magician... And it one of those child memories that just yeah. sticks. And, you know, especially if it's, like, part of a traveling circus, which yeah. would make perfect sense, like, those shows are meant to sort of discombobulate you and sort of you know, create a sense of awe or wonder by uh, the use of imagery and and lights and sounds and and other such things that you're not used to. Yeah. So you could also argue that this, you know, there's an association between that and fever when your body sort of puts you into that state. Yep. And, you know, that it's hard to escape especially in the passage you quote, hard to escape sexual imagery. Yeah. But you could read it more as, like, a puberty thing or a sexual awakening of some kind. 
without sure. having to read the assault in. Um, though either way, like the trauma is there. Yeah. Um, so and it's, it's it's not an innocent sort of recurrence. Yes. This this magician yes. has something that seems sinister, whether it's sexual or whether it's just traumatic in general, or yeah. somehow has become connected to the trauma. Right. It's it, it's it's not innocent. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, no, that's something that I'll be watching for in my second read. Another thing, let me ask you this question, question number two. Yes. Did you keep track of the tenses in the narration? Uh, I definitely noticed that it was slipping between tenses. Mm-hmm. I, ke- I think I kept track of it for the first, like, few chapters, and then at a certain point I just sort of let it go. Um, and I think it would be interesting, again, maybe on a second read, to keep better track of them and see if there's anything there. I just ended up not being sure that there was anything with the tense switching other than this being sort of, you know, Kay Gibbons imitating a 14-year-old child's... Um, sure. You know, sort of... Mental a, sort of self-narration. Yeah, or even if she... Like, I often get get the impression of Alan Foster writing this in a notebook or yeah. possibly or a even diary. for a psychologist or therapist sure. of some kind and like just it being sort of a stylistic thing to to cement that narrative character um and it's at least that i think yeah i don't i if there was any more significance to it I didn't pick it up, and I wouldn't be able to argue coherently sure. for it. And first, I thought it was a, a difference because you, you're you're varying between present and past tense, right? And at first, I thought it was just the difference between those two. Here I am writing this in my foster home versus right. this is what this happened is what in happened the in the past. Yeah, but it sometimes but varies there, within passages. Within that, yeah, yeah. It, it varies, and so that's another thing that I'm thinking I might have to look at in my second read of this book. Yeah, it could. Track. It could even be um, a uh, way to indicate, and again, this is that author-narrator interplay, but for the author to have the narrator indicate which events or thoughts or feelings or whatever are more significant to Ellen Foster as a character. Yeah, that could be. Um, Because I suspect... probably... I suspect in a real narrative of this kind, like, written by someone like this, if you slipped into present tense, having intended to... started and intended to continue in past tense, the present tense, I suspect, would be, like, the things that really still seem very close and very real, right. whereas the past Which tense might be is, something you've achieved distance from. This book is very much about memory yeah. in a lot of ways. And Absolutely. so having the present tense, that's the clearer memory yeah. than the past tense. Or at least the memory that feels clearer and more sure. real. Yeah. Um, because sometimes, you know, traumatic memories, we mask them and, and shape them more yeah. than... Memories that are just sort of memories that don't have mm-hmm. an emotional charge to them. Definitely, so definitely. you could really argue it either way, I think. Absolutely. But, no, that's something that I think I want to watch when I read this book again. And I will say when I read this book again. Yeah, because, absolutely. 
I need to read this book again. I need to read this book two or three more times. I need to just yeah. have it sit in my head and become a part of me. Yeah. Do you want to just jump into ratings right now? Yeah. There's I'm, more we probably yeah. can say. Once again, like, <laughs> probably all of the books on this podcast could do two to seven to 25 more episodes. We could just be on this book. about this podcast. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, we could no do chapter two, by chapter. We could do two episodes per chapter on this book. Tell me I'm wrong. I won't, because you're right. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> so, all right. Gentle listener, take note. First time on this podcast, Michael has said I'm right. Uh, you can't prove anything. No one can prove anything. Um, you know what we didn't We're talk about? We're all figments of everyone's imagination. The frickin' superscription? Yep. Uh, that Emerson. I hate? Yep. Emerson's superscription from Self-Reliance. I don't hate it. I just hate Emerson. Sure. Have I, mean, I mentioned on this podcast ever how much I hate Emerson? And all the transcendentalists? And transcendentalists? Yes. Yeah, no, you have. I'm pretty have sure. Have I? I'm pretty sure you have. Are you pretty sure because you have an actual memory of me doing this, or are you pretty sure because it's, like, one of the first have... facts that anyone getting <laughs> to know me knows about me? Uh, one of those. Yeah, I know it's one of those. One of those. That's all I'll say. Um, anyway. No, we don't need to talk about Emerson there and what that implies about this character. Yeah, so, alright. <laughs> you can read it yourself, gentle listener, and I know you have. Yeah. That uh, quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's, I mean, it's not inappropriate no. for the book. It also is not, not problematized throughout the course of this book. Right? But that's for like, an entire another episode. Is this like, a description of, okay. Okay, frick. Okay. We've got we've got a little time. All right, all right. Let's take a couple minutes here. Talk about the inscription. So, wait, is superscription the correct term? Am I t- superscription? Do I mean is, epigraph? Yes. Sure. I mean both of those. Don't yeah, I? it's both. Okay. The supergraphascription ep, um, yep, is from Ralph Waldo Emerson's poem "Self Reliance," yep. which, to be clear, I don't know if I've been clear enough about this. Not only do I hate Ralph Waldo Emerson, okay. I super hate self-reliance. Oh, okay. But um, how do you feel about his poetry? Also hate. But and not like, and not to be clear. Self-reliance? Absolutely, especially self-reliance. And not to be clear, this like like ironic, stupid, like I hate it, but actually I love it thing that was all of my texts to Michael about Ellen Foster. No, this is actual hatred. Like how you hate Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, exactly like okay. that. Except Catcher in the Rye didn't write a bunch of super anti-Semitic essays. Go look it up, gentle listener. Huh? Boom! Boom. Okay. okay, so this is from Self-Reliance, which, as I understand, is a restatement to some extent of... The Bhagavad Gita, the oh, okay. um, Buddhist yep. scripture. Mm-hmm. I was trying to remember who was Buddhist or Hindu. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's. I think it's Buddhist. A Buddhist classic. Yeah. 
um, and the history of Buddhism and Hinduism is something we super don't need to get into. Right. But, like, frankly, if I were to tell you to do one or the other, I would say just read the Bhagavad Gita and skip self-reliance. Eh. Because it's like, I'd rather have you read the original and good version of a thing I disagree with than the garbage and bad version of a thing I disagree with. So, here we are. Cast the bantling on the rocks, suckle him with the she-wolf's teat, wintered with the hawk and fox, power and speed, be hands and feet. Mm-hmm. So, which is this the place a that... a lot of self-reliance. Yes. Almost like that's the name of the poem that's right there on the actual page. Yep. Is this where Ellen Foster starts? Is this where Ellen Foster ends? Or is it something other than those two options? I think it's absolutely where she starts. Yeah. Um, especially after she loses her mother. Which is kind of... At least literarily the first trauma yes. she experiences. Even though, trickily... Trickily, Kay Gibbons doesn't give this trauma to us on stage. Nope. And again, the two possibly deepest traumas between her mother and her father probably have the least specific page count attached to them. Absolutely. Which is super Greek of Kay Gibbons to do. Yeah, right. Um, No. At least she didn't send Ellen Foster off stage and then have a messenger come back to tell us she gouged out her frickin' eyes. (laughs) What? Yeah. No, that's... I'm pretty sure that's what this is all about. Like, she is, you know, cast onto the rocks. Yeah. Ellen Foster is cast onto the rocks. Which, as much as I said, you know, self-reliance has sort of Eastern literary and metaphysical Mm -hmm. roots, that's very much a Romulus and Remus thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's, that was my first thought. I didn't even think of the Bhagavad Gita here. I just know um, because I, I know studied that poem separately poem. in a sure. college class I took. So Well, you're smarter than I am. So I doubt that. Okay. How many languages can you read fluently? Define fluently. Semi-fluently. <laughs> Semi-fluently. Uh, one, two, three, four. Yeah, one, two, three, five. F- four, five, gentle listener. <laughs> I can do English and sort of French. Sort of emphasis and a Six. little Latin. So Six. that's one and two th- quarters? Six. Two six. <laughs> so, yeah, go yeah. on. Anyway. No, that's and that's that's exactly where Ellen Foster begins here. Um, she's suckled with the she-wolf's teeth. She, she is forced to she's find nourishment where she can. The wild child. Yes, exactly. Yeah. She's she's Mowgli. Yeah. Or the, uh... Oh. There's a, a child whose image Dickens brings up in multiple novels. Mm. Who, like, supposedly was cast out into the woods in Germany. Um, oh, Raised yeah. by wolves. And then sent to I England. I studied that in psychology in high school. I can't remember the, the name. What was that? But yeah. it is where the term wild child comes from. Yep. So... Anyway, yeah, that's what she is. And yep. it's a tricky, sneaky, jerk wad of an of a, of a, an epigraph. Yep. Because usually epigraphs are like to encapsulate the theme or mm-hmm. like the through line or like even the the uh, climax of the novel. Yeah, no. This is definitely 
to encapsulate where Ellen Foster starts. Yeah. And it's so clever and so smart. And also, I hate this book a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Do you? Do you really? I do. And by that, I do mean that, like, when I finished reading this book, I wandered around my apartment, apartment for an entire hour, unable to do anything but, like, just sort of hang my mouth open and drool over how good this book was. Good. With that, let's move to ratings. (laughs) (laughs) Ratings. Um, uh, traditionally, first we go through the scotch. Which, we have been drinking the same scotch for an entire month. Though, I do want to say something. Two months. Several months. Eleven years. Yes. Um, Wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. We have beat this reference to death. Yes, we definitely have. Um, and we're gonna keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, I don't take back any of my numbers or my ratings from last month when I did rate the scotch. So, though I will say, I think I said this at the beginning of this episode or the last episode, um, 3.5 on my single malt scotch rating scale much higher if I was just doing a generally, like, sipping drinks or even sipping whiskey scale. Um, if I didn't specifically want a scotch and I just wanted some kind of whiskey and I was taking rye and bourbons into account, this would be just a fine, beautiful sipping whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not what I'm looking for when I specifically... You know, maybe splurge, maybe spend a little more buying a single malt scotch specifically. But I don't think I can or would ever be or have been sorry to drink this scotch. Sure. That said, also, some of the flavors changed for me a little bit. Or at least malt added? I don't know. As, As we drank this over these last, you know, month or so... And I don't know if this was because we don't chill our scotch or apparently use ice cubes ever, even though we super could, but we don't, I guess. Yeah. Um, This scotch, I found the peat in it. Ah. There's a little bit of peat underlying everything, which is, like, not unexpected because that's the definition of a scotch. Like, <laughs> that's what makes a scotch different from all other whiskeys. All scotches are finished over peat, yep. at least, so that's there. It is there. It's not the smoky peaty thing that I want, but it's it's there. Maybe a um, wet sort of peat. Yeah. It's like, as the peat gets slightly warmer, as like the, the like dark fruit stuff gets slightly warmer, it turns into the peat. Sure. Um, so that whole spectrum, I think, is present. Um, sure. And I like I like that. Like I liked it when it was the dark fruit, and I liked it, you know, when it was uh, the the peatier thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess other than that, like some of the raisiny, chocolatey, plummy tastes, like on the on the finish intensified as I was drinking yeah. more of it. Like I know the box said coffee. I haven't identified anything that I would call coffee more than I would call certain other things. Sure. So... Different spices and stuff. Yeah, definitely spices, but... I mean, you know, 
uh, out of how many scotches have we reviewed on this show? Probably at this point, uh, maybe? Uh, a bunch. A bunch. I'm going to say 20 at a... Maybe? At a minimum, like, round guess? Yeah. Out of 20, I'd say this is probably maybe 5, but out of the top 5? Sure. So, certainly not a bad one. Sure. Yeah. I'm with you. Very, very, very good. I'm also not going to change my rating, my 4.5. I'm going to leave it at that. Um, Yeah, maybe some of the smokiness came out. Um, yeah. Continue peediness. drinking. Yeah, that's peediness. Yeah, not not necessarily smokiness, but the peediness. That uh, it's interesting to me that you rated it so highly. I love it. I love it, and I cool. could drink this all cool. day. I mean, like I said, as just a sipping liquor, mm-hmm. I could definitely drink this all day. I think, like, I think I protest so much because I feel bad about how low I rated it. But oh, I no. can't rate it any higher no, as that's a fine. scotch. That's fine. That's no, I know. Rating. I just feel like the scotch in my glass is a little hurt by oh, me. Oh, okay. You're apologizing. And I to wanted scotch, to know that, so. like, I don't hold anything against. Oh, good. All right. It's like an ex-girlfriend that you broke up with on amiable terms, right? Except that I would still continue drinking this, so that's more like continuing to date. Anyway, this metaphor so, sounded good in my head, but it's but falling it's really apart a as I said. Garbage metaphor. Wow. I'm telling your wife. Wow. That you're gonna go date all your ex girlfriends. Oh, oh! I was gonna say, if you tell her that I'm gonna go date some Scott, she won't be surprised at all. No, no, she would. Anyway, it's a good scotch. Don't like. No, it's if good. any of the flavor stuff we've said appeals to you, don't be afraid to buy it. Don't be afraid you'll be disappointed. Right. Just if you want that peaty, smoky element, you will be disappointed. Right. But other than that, you won't be. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the book. What do you think? Buy, borrow, forget about it. Um, buy eleven copies. <laughs> give all of them away. Buy eleven more copies. Give those away. Buy. Three more copies, read each of them individually, and then as you finish each copy, give it away, and then buy one more copy and keep it and reread it forever. So you like this book better than The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Okay, do I or did I just establish one, like, baseline in that rating and I felt like I had to top it? I will say at least as much. At least as much. All right. And certainly very different. Like, as much as thematic stuff and certain character stuff did overlap, and we could do an entire podcast about just the overlap. Sure. Very different books. Oh, yes. So, like, apples and oranges. Like, you can compare fruit, but... Right, because sometimes you want an apple, but sometimes you really just want an orange. exactly. But, like... Hard to say one is better than the other. They're both sure. very excellent. Good. Yeah, uh, I'm going to say also buy it. Just just buy it. Um, I was fortunate enough to find two copies of this book on a bookshelf yeah, in that's Wilhelm, a Wisconsin. Fascinating little uh, bit of... Um, there's a word I'm looking for. Information? That I, uh, no, there's like... A circumstance? Well, the word I want is copacetic, but whatever the form of copacetic is, okay. to finish the sentence, that's a fascinating little bit of okay. copaceticosity. All right. In our tradition on this podcast of inventing words. Copacetic, I believe, is 
a word that uh, Bojangles made up in the 1930s, so I don't feel too bad about adding on to it less than 100 years later. Sure. So. All right. That's fine, then. I like it. Thank I'm you. with you. Thank you. And, yes, I am just marveling at Synchronicity ah. also is the word I was looking for, but I hate that word. Synchronicity? Yeah. So I'm going to go with copacetic. Is it like how some people react to the word moist? Maybe? All right. Sure. But not me, though. Not you? Yeah. Okay. All right. So no, you need a larger like, sample size than one. Sure. Go but ahead. it is a marvel to me that I found two copies of this book on the same shelf. Yeah, it's I'm tremendous. wondering if it wasn't the sort of, like, book clubby thing. Oh, like or, how it has Oprah's book club right there on the front? Right, and I'm wondering if, <laughs> that like, would make some sense. old ladies book club from the 90s read this book. And yeah. then, like, that's right, Oprah. Some certain old lady died, and her kids were like, "We wow. need to get rid of all this stuff." That's an and awful these specific. Are a couple of books. And so that is an awfully go. specific and also slightly morbid theory to have about this. That's exactly my theory about this. But I it, think both of these books belongs to an old lady. One of them she read, and one of them her daughter or sister read for their book club. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem unlikely, but also, I think you're very awful. Well, that's your opinion, and we'll let the listener decide. <laughs> yeah. Um, Spoiler alert, the listener's on my side. Are they, though? Are they, though? Update, yes. Oh. So there. Okay. Okay. Well, what do you think of the book Scotch pairing this time around? How does the Dalmar 12 year pair with Ellen Foster? Um, I don't know. Okay. I want to hear your rating first, and then I'll see if I have any thoughts on my rating. Sure. I'll say, in the first place, I think that it pairs better with The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Mm-hmm. However, I don't think it pairs poorly with Ellen Foster. Uh, yeah. Precisely because it is such a good sipping whiskey. And you yeah. can just kind of take it slow. Honestly, I think for Ellen Foster, and it's not just because it's Southern, but more a little more complex than that, I think it needs a bourbon. Yeah. Or because even it's like a... sweet and... Yeah. Just a really good bourbon to go with this book. Yeah. Just to s- sip sweet and cool. That's even like... Means. A mint julep with, like, the perfect bourbon with it. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Um, yeah. I guess you sort of encapsulated my thoughts. Like, I didn't dislike this whiskey with this book. Sure. But I didn't think it was perfect, and I think what you said is right for what I was was trying to think and say. Sure. And I don't think this book would pair well with an eyelight, either. No. Absolutely like, not. Like, you don't want an Islay, you don't want this Highland, at least. Probably not really any Highland. I Honestly, yeah. bourbon is really the only thing I can think that would maybe pair like well a, with this book. Maybe like a Lowland maybe. scotch, maybe, but maybe. bourbon would be the, like, obvious choice. Yeah. Like, maybe a Four Roses, maybe a Bullion. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So. But, yeah. on the other hand... You know, this scotch, very complex and layered. This book, very complex and layered. Absolutely. So, not so, a bad not choice by any means. No. Yeah. All right. 
So those are the ratings. Uh, what are we doing next month, Ethan? Well, Michael, as we have agreed, like this isn't super a surprise for any of us. Not only what? next, I know. Not only next month or however that goes, according to our current well, recording schedule. The next time we are reading and discussing a regular book, a regular book is. Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes. You may recognize this book from literally everywhere. (laughs) Uh, This, weirdly, for this book being a literary classic that is 400 plus years old, this one does also have a movie coming out soon. Um, Terry Gilliam's The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. And we may talk more about that when we do discuss Don Quixote, depending on if either of us has seen that or Lost in La Mancha, the first movie that Terry Gilliam made sort of regarding Don Quixote. We'll let you do... There's a whole complex of stuff to know about those two movies, and we'll let you do your own research um, because this podcast is already over time. But (laughs) here's what you need to know. We are going to read Don Quixote... For our next book, book podcast. Now, Don Quixote, as it is published now, technically comprises two books. Yeah. Both of which are fairly freaking long. Like, in the realm of 600 plus pages long? In a, in a trade paperback style, yes. Um, so, our next regular book pod... And so, here's the thing about Don Quixote, a little bit of publishing history... The first volume, what is roughly the first half of any version of the book you'll get now, came out in 1605, was wildly popular, was the, like, Da Vinci Code, except it was an actually good book of its day. (laughs) Um, You know, spawned many imitators, was, you know, super popular. Right. Uh, Cervantes wrote a sequel to it, and that came out in 1615. That is now published as, like, volume two of Don Quixote at this point. So, what we're going to do on the first two episodes of our next regular book podcast is read volume one of Don Quixote, and then on the following two episodes, we'll read volume two. So, two things you can do. You can just breeze through the first two volumes and just be caught up for that entire four-episode run. Because we don't promise to not spoil Volume 2 in our Volume 1 shows. Or, if you want to spread it out more, read Book 1, that'll get you through the first two episodes. Read Book 2, that'll get you through the second two episodes. Yep. Um, Either way, whatever you want to do. I mean, Don Quixote is like a super old book at this point. Sort of hard to fully spoil it, probably. So, do what you want. Now, Michael... Um, we'll be reading the translation of Don Quixote by Tobias Smollett. Yep. Smollett, Smollett's translation is still very body in keeping with the original book. However, the drawback of his translation is that in the 1600s, Spanish to English dictionaries maybe were not the best. And maybe <laughs> Smollett's translation was more of like a paraphrase than a direct literal translation. I have a different translation at home that I'm going to be reading. It's a 20th century translation. 
um, that I just read the first page or so of in a bookstore and thought it looked good and kept a lot of that comic spirit of the original. And so that's the one I'm going to be reading. So you'll have different experiences depending on which translation you read. Um, that said, just read, if you want to, any version of Don Quixote and you probably should be able to follow along with us in our in our podcast. So that's going to be, that's sort of, Michael and I sort of discussed and came to an agreement on this. So, so that's like my next pick and his next pick. Yep. So that's how that's going to go. Uh, so pretty big ambitious work that we're tackling, but we think we can half-ass it the way that we have half-assed all of our literary classics and works so far. We have half-assed it all. <laughs> yes. Um, our 17th motto for the show. <laughs> so, uh, with that, you know what we're reading next month, and so read along and uh, give your comments. We want to hear what you have to say about these books that we're reading. Go to the Tapestry Radio website and leave your feedback in the contact section, tapestryradio.org, or in the comment section underneath this episode. Uh, you can also uh, talk about everything that we discuss here on our Facebook group, Tapestry Radio Tap House. It's a closed group, but request to join. We'll let you in as long as you're not an unreliable narrator uh, yes. or a Spanish novelist. No, we'll let you in if you're a Spanish novelist. Especially if you're <laughs> Cervantes resurrected from the grave somehow, yes. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, uh, review us on iTunes. Give us five stars. And yeah, iTunes has, and also all other podcast platforms, has yes. this new weird thing where you can only give us five stars or not it's review weird. us. It's weird. It is weird, but give us five stars or, you know, again. Or nothing else. Nothing. Yep. Uh, follow us on Twitter. We are at Room with Scotch. Uh, follow our network, also the Tapestry Radio Network. Enjoy some of the other great shows we have there, like Intermission, our audio drama podcast, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United RPG actual play podcast. You missed one of the words. Pokemon Tabletop United RPG actual play RPG podcast. You didn't say butts. Oh, is that yeah, so? yeah. yeah. You didn't. That is so I that you go didn't. To the bathroom. I'm gonna cut you. I know. All right. Well, uh, I should give Michael a loss for that, but we're already over time, and I'm feeling merciful and sanctified. Uh, so, gentle listener, thank you for listening, and join us next time when we review review uh talk about anyway don quixote the classic work by cervantes thank you we love you michael loves you even though he's not here anymore we love you Bye bye
Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.